0: Good to be with you all this morning. Um, my name is Andrew Martin. I'm the director for our youth ministry here at Christ the King. And uh, it's my privilege, if you're a guest or a visitor with us this morning, um, we're really glad that you have arrived. And it's our privilege to welcome you here to be with us. Because you see, as Christians, we are a people who celebrate arrivals. Uh, we're a people who welcome others. Because we have celebrated the arrival of our King Jesus and we have been welcomed by him into his family. You see that's what we've been doing over these past few weeks during the Christmas Advent season. Advent means arrival and so we've been waiting um, for the ultimate arrival of King Jesus who came first as a small baby and grew up into a man and laid his life down for us and is now uh, sitting at the right hand of God but one day is going to come back. And he's going to welcome us ultimately into our final home. And so during that time, as we wait for him, we welcome the arrival of others into our midst to hear this good news about Jesus. And it's our prayer that you too would receive the welcome of his people and ultimately the welcome into his family. But as we, as we welcome arrivals, we're also a people of waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. And while we wait, it's very easy for us have different questions that arise in our mind. Perhaps the most obvious one would be, well, who is it exactly that we're waiting for? Christians who have been walking with Jesus for a long time can have this question, who exactly is this Jesus that we're waiting for? And if you're visiting with us and you've heard a little bit about Christianity, you you probably have a similar question. Who exactly are these people waiting for? They say they're waiting, they celebrate Advent, but who is this Jesus? So it's my prayer this morning that as we read um, this word from Luke chapter 2, that we'll get a little bit better understanding of who Jesus is as we hear a story from his life. So we're in Luke chapter 2 this morning. It's printed in your bulletins. You can also turn to it in your Bibles. And read with me now as we begin in verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you have been faithful to us during this Advent season. That are waiting for you has never been in vain, and that your arrival is a means, is a time for celebrating the good news of what you've come to do. So we pray, Lord, this morning that you would help us to understand who you are as our Savior a little bit better, and that this good news would transform our lives as we continue to wait obediently and faithfully for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few mornings ago on Christmas morning, like many families across the country, we were celebrating Christmas with our children, and we were all sitting around, and uh, they were opening up their gifts, and one of our children, they have been anxiously waiting, waiting to open these presents, and uh, one of my children uh, took one package, and they reached inside, and they pulled out the gift, and they held it up, and they said, yay, what is it? And kids, probably you've had very similar experiences where Christmas mornings you've been waiting for your gifts and you're so excited and you open them up and you don't know what it is. You don't understand it. You're still excited, but you're not really sure how it works. Maybe it's a puzzle that you're going to need your parents to help you with or a toy that hasn't been put together yet. And so all you see are lots of different random pieces, but you don't see how it functions and what it's going to do and how it's going to bring you joy in a certain way. We've all experienced these things where we have things that we like, we're excited about, but we don't, we don't quite understand them. And sometimes it's just, well, we just need a little time to, to get to know this thing a little bit better, read the instructions. But other times, our our misunderstanding actually begins to lead us to frustration. And sometimes that frustration can then even lead us to anger. Because not only do we not understand this gift, maybe, maybe it wasn't exactly what we had hoped for. Maybe we didn't get the thing that we had desired and the way that we had desired it. Or perhaps it, it didn't do for us the thing that we had hoped it would do. It didn't give us the happiness or the joy or the satisfaction that we had longed for and that we had looked to this thing to give us. And I think it's very easy for that to happen for us on Christmas morning when we celebrate the ultimate arrival of Jesus. Because like Mary and Joseph, we don't understand Jesus. There's so many things about him that we just don't get. And a lot of times this misunderstanding grows out of very real pain in our lives, very real suffering that we've experienced, sins that we've fallen to, or sins that we have received at the hands of others, hurts that we've received. So we become angry, we become frustrated with Jesus. We don't understand him because we think, Jesus, you were, we we're told that you were coming to save us, to deliver us from the suffering, from these sins. But it doesn't seem like you've done that. For some of us, we feel that because we've celebrated Christmas morning, but there's been empty chairs. People who used to be there with us that are no longer there. And we grieve that painful to us. For others, all the chairs are full, but there might as well be a grand canyon of distance between us because the relationships that are there in front of us have been broken. We've experienced pain from the people sitting right across the table from us. I think, Jesus, where are you in this situation? Why haven't you saved us from this? Or for others, we continue to wrestle with sin We feel great shame and guilt. And maybe even on Christmas Day itself, some of you fell into a pattern of sin that you've been falling into over and over and over again over the years. And you think, how could I on Christmas Day sin against Jesus? Why has he not saved me from this sin on this day or any other day of the year? Where are you, Jesus? I don't understand you. Well, friends, this this makes a lot of sense. It's things that we can relate to. And these are very important questions for us to be asking. Because all this suffering, all these sins that we wrestle with, these things matter very, very deeply to our God. See, in Psalm 56, David, probably a man who who knew suffering like, like no other man who had ever lived, he wrote a song, wrote a prayer to God, and he says, Lord, you have put my tears in your bottle." God knows all of our tears and our cares. He cares about each single one of them. David also says, you've counted the number of times I've tossed in my bed. Every time you've rolled over with fear, with anxiety, with grief or guilt, God sees it. He counts it. He knows it. He cares about it. And that's why, that's the reason that Jesus came. Because God loves us and because he cares for us. And it's why Luke wrote this story down for us. Theophilus, the original, one of the original readers of this story, he says to them, I'm writing to you so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. See, we've all been taught that God is love. We've been taught that he cares about us, that he sees these things that we're going through. And yet, in the midst of our sin and suffering, it's easy for us to become not so certain that those things are true. It's easy to begin to doubt those truths. And that's why this word was written for Theophilus and all the readers in, in the ancient Roman world No, it's been passed down and carefully preserved and given to us so that we too can have certainty that Jesus was worth waiting for, that Jesus does give us a reason to celebrate. And why? Why is this true? Well, one of the first reasons we're going to see is that Jesus can identify with us in our pain and our suffering because Jesus became just like you and me. We have been waiting for a Savior who lived a human life. As Christians, we confess that Jesus is 100% God. We see that in this passage here. Jesus calls God my Father. Nowhere in the Old Testament does anyone call God my Father. He's referred to as Father, but it's always as a group. We say, our Father. We are His people. We're His children. But Jesus says, no, He is my Father. He's saying, I am God. 100%. And we see this in other passages throughout the New Testament. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Jesus is 100% God. But something happens at Advent. Something happens when Jesus arrives in the flesh. Our God becomes 100% man. He becomes 100% human being. So that now he is what we call the God-man. And this is a great mystery. We're not going to sort it all out. I can't pop the the hood on the engine of this thing today and say, well, see, this is how he's 100% God and 100% man. We don't understand it. And that's okay. But we don't have to understand it for it to be true and for it to give us great hope and for it to be our salvation. And it is our salvation because the Bible teaches that for Jesus to be 100% God and 100% man was absolutely vital. It had to happen. In Hebrews 2, he says, since the children, since you and I share in flesh and blood because we're human, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, what he's saying is, to save us, Jesus had to be just like us. And that's Luke's point. He's saying, this is exactly what happened. Look at me, Well, if you turn back to Luke chapter 2, when the shepherds, when they first hear about the arrival, about the advent of Christ, they go and they find him, and he's lying in a manger. He's a little baby, a human child. And then in this passage, we hear that they go up to Jerusalem and they call, what, what do they call Jesus? They call him the boy, a 12-year-old boy. He's a 100% man, experiencing life just like you and me. Verse 52, he says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus is growing up. Just like any other child that's ever walked on the face of this earth has had to do. And what would this look like? Jesus experiencing life just like all of us have experienced it. Well, it says that he was a 12-year-old boy. Now, that's a very significant age for a young man in Jerusalem or in Israel at that time. Because at the age of 13, he would become what they call a bar mitzvah. He would become a son of the commandment. Bar means son, mitzvah means commandment. And that's where we get this modern, uh, this modern beautiful tradition uh, among, among uh, people who practice Judaism. You become a full member of the synagogue. You're fully responsible to obey the laws and the commandments of God. And this is the same back in these days. And so when it says that Jesus was 12 years old and they bring him up to Jerusalem, they're taking him up there because they know that in a year he's going to become a son of the commandment. Fully responsible for living as a full member of the people of God. And so they bring him to Jerusalem. Why? To celebrate the Passover. One of the most important feasts and festivals that he will participate in when he grows up. And so they're bringing him there because Jesus doesn't know everything yet. As a man, he's learning. He's growing. He's being taught by his parents. He's experiencing life just like you and me as we have to learn. As we have to grow. As we need our parents to teach us. And we also see that not only this, but he's asking questions. Look in verse 46. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And they're amazed. He has extraordinary knowledge and understanding. And yet, he's still learning. He's asking questions. He's thirsty for the Word of God. And he needs teachers to teach him, just as we do. We have a a Savior who lived a human life, just like you and me. And this would continue throughout the rest of his life because as he would continue growing and he would continue teaching, he would also experience other things that we do. He'd experience hunger. He'd experience loneliness. He'd experience betrayal by his best friends. He'd experience misunderstanding from his family. He'd experience pain as he wore the crown of thorns on his head. And he would ultimately experience death. just like you and me, in so many ways. See, friends, our God is not an aloof God. When you wake up on Christmas mornings or any morning, and you wonder, what exactly are we waiting for? Is it worth it? Is there any reason to celebrate this Christmas morning? What we see here in the life of Jesus is that yes, the answer is yes. We have every reason to celebrate, because that is exactly why Jesus came, was to live just like us, and it's because God is love. In 1 John it says, God is love and we know this because he sent his son into the world. We have every reason to celebrate Jesus. And this is something we can actually relate to and appreciate. People who come into other people's lives and ex- enter into their suffering and experience life the way that they are experiencing it. A few days ago I learned a story of a, of a woman in, in Europe named Gertie McKenna. And she had been given the terrible news by her doctors that she was sick with cancer. A striking blow, cause for deep grief and sadness. And so she reached out to ten of her best friends. And she said, I'd like for you to come and spend some time with me. uh, And I'd like for us to get a, a group portrait taken together. As a way to just to encourage me, to remind me of good times to remind me, to encourage me that, that you're with me, that you're for me. And just to encourage me as, as I go through this very difficult time in my life. Would you do that? And a friend said, yes, we will. So they came in from all over. But when she entered into the room to have this portrait taken with her, she had a tremendous surprise waiting for her. Not only had ten friends arrived, but when she walked into that room, she was not the only person who had no hair on her head. She walked into the room and there were ten women. Who would shave their heads. And when they asked these women, why did you do this? Why would you lay down your life, potentially suffer disgrace or humility, why would you do this? They said, because we love you. They said, We're here for you, Gertie. We're doing this out of love. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us. You see, we hear these stories. And we grieve, and rightly so, because human bodies were made good. In Genesis 1, God creates human bodies and says, this is good. And so we grieve when these good things get sick and and die because of the fall. But we also rejoice when we see other people who will take their good body and lay it down and sacrifice it out of love for other people. Because this also is a good thing. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He comes, he takes on a a true human, 100% man body, and he enters into our suffering. And you see, when we understand and when we appreciate the beauty of this story about Gerda, we also see the beauty of the gospel in a way like no other. Because you see, while it was beautiful for them to do this, to shave their heads and enter into her life in this way, it was very limited. They could only enter into her life in a way that was showing sympathy for her. They couldn't undergo chemotherapy for her. They couldn't take and cure her cancer, but Jesus can. You see, when Jesus took on a human body, he didn't come just with the power to sympathize with us. He came with the power to actually save us, to live life exactly as we have, and then to take that life and to lay it down and take it back up again with the power to forgive us for our sins and to bring us into his home and relieve us from all of our sufferings when he returns. And so when we ask, was he worth waiting for? Is there anything to celebrate? Like Gertie, we can respond with joy and with laughter. You know what she did when her friends arrived? She embraced them. She laughed for joy because she knew they'd come with love and with care for her. And that's exactly how we can respond to Jesus. is because we see he's not here just to sympathize with us, but he actually comes here to save us. And that injects us with tremendous joy so that we can embrace him in love. But how is this possible? How is the fact that Jesus came to live as a man make it possible for him to actually save us? How is him being a man different from anyone else living and laying down their life for someone else's sins? How come only Jesus could do this? Well, you see, Jesus became just like you and me except for one thing. He was just like you and me, experienced life in the exact same ways except for one thing. He was completely without sin. You see, we've been waiting for a Savior who lived a human life, but who also lived a life of perfect obedience. And it's what we need. You see, this is where sin and suffering has entered into the world. Adam, the first man, sinned against God. And because of his disobedience, he fell. And we've all been a part of that. But Jesus, when he came and lived a life of perfect obedience, that qualified him to stand in the gap and to save us. And this is Luke's second point here, is that Jesus not only lived a human life, but he lived a life of perfect, 100% obedience. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, that's not exactly how I'm reading this story this morning, because it seems like Jesus might have actually violated the fifth commandment by dishonoring his mother and father. I mean, look look at this here, verse 43, he stayed behind and his parents didn't know where he was. Verse 46, he didn't just stay behind, he was gone for three days. Three days he was missing. They did not know where he was. In verse 48, Mary very clearly thinks that Jesus has sinned, that he has dishonored her. She says, why have you treated us this way? You've, you've, you've caused us great distress. And we know that Jesus was a 12-year-old, and as all of us have been as 12-year-olds, we can get a little snarky at times. I still get snarky. Kids, I'm not picking on you. This is something that happens as preteens, and it continues into adulthood. But look at his answer. You know, we could read this and say, here it sounds as if he's saying, why are you looking for me? But that's not what Luke is saying here about Jesus this morning. He's not at all painting a picture of a young pre-adolescent who's being disrespectful to his parents. Look in verse 51. It says, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Luke is saying Jesus was obedient to his parents. And this is something, this honor would last for his entire life. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, he loved his mother. He cared for his mother. He honored his mother. As he he was dying with his last breaths, he looked down and he knew that in that society, a woman without a son to care for her would have a very difficult time. And so he looks to one of his disciples and said, here is your mother. Take care of her. Even as he died, he honored his mother. He loved her. Luke and the entire Bible give us this picture that he was never with any sin and if you have any doubt about that in Hebrews 4 it says he was like us in every respect he was tempted as we were yet without sin. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. Verse 49 and this is where it really really get into it he says did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And that's, this is the, the pinnacle of the story here. You know, all this stress, all this anxiety that Mary's had been experiencing as we walk with her through the streets of Jerusalem, trying to figure out where is Jesus, where is he, where is this anxiety going to take us? And it builds and builds and builds like the climax in a movie. And we get to this point and we learn why. Why? Because Jesus was where God wanted him to be. He was aligning his life perfectly with the will of God. And we see this throughout the rest of Luke. He says, I must preach because it was why I was sent. I must suffer to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill God's word. He said, I did not come to seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we need this. We need someone who can be like this, who can obey perfectly, because we recognize that this is not possible on our own. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in college, I was participating in some summer training for professional development. And there were a number of us participating in this training. And we were sharing a room. And we were sort of in bunks, uh, about 12 of us in there. And, you know, we'd go out for a training and we'd come back and this is where we sleep, this is where we rest. And uh, we had a, a small bathroom that was adjoining our, our living area. And this thing was terrible because it was constantly backing up with sewage. Sewage would just back up into this bathroom all the time. And, you know, you'd wait for it to drain out, and then you could go in there. But it was still filthy. It was just, it was just disgusting. And so to, to help deal with this situation, we came up with, a, with a, a room policy. We said, if you go into this bathroom, you need to clean your shoes before you come back out into the living area. Just out of, for health and sanitation, but also out of, you know, respect for your fellow human beings. And I had a particular interest in this because I was on the bottom bunk. And anyone who wanted to get to their bunk was going to have to climb up my bunk to get into it. So we had one guy, and I was very, very dis- concerned because this guy lived right above me. He was in a bunk right above my own. And he decided, I'm not doing it. I don't care what you other eleven guys think. I'm not, I'm not cleaning my shoes before I come out of this bathroom. You guys can just deal with it. He cared nothing about loving God by caring for his neighbors, by laying his life down, to, to just clean his shoes up, to come into the bathroom. And he was willing, to because he wanted to follow his own will, his own ways, he was willing to, to track filth all over the room, get it all over himself and all over the rest of us. And it's easy to, to kind of knock on this guy, but that's actually a picture of how all of us are too. We do the exact same things. We wade through the filth of sin. We don't just get it on our feet. We get it all over us in every way imaginable. And we sling it all over the lives of people around us. Because it is impossible for us to obey God and to love him perfectly the way that we were designed to. And when we recognize this, we then see the beauty again of the gospel. We see the beauty that here is a man who has come who lived perfectly to then clean us from our sin to forgive us when we do these things and to transform us into people who no longer trap filth all over the place and get it all over others, but have actually been cleaned by Christ and welcomed into his family because he was perfectly obedient in a way that we could never imagine or think possible in our own lives. Now what difference is this going to make in our lives this year? As we go into the new year, tomorrow's New Year's Eve, Probably many of us have New Year's resolutions or things that we're hoping for this year. What will this hope about our Savior do for us this year? How will it change us? How will we be different? Well, friends, this is the last point. We've been waiting for a Savior who actually transforms our lives. You see, Jesus was a 100% man who was 100% obedient. And because of that, he is actually now transforming our lives to be more like his so that we can love God and love our neighbor more and more In the way that Jesus did. It won't be perfect. It won't be perfect until Jesus comes back. But he's shaping us. He's sanctifying us. More and more to be like him. Once theologian put it this way. From childhood Jesus shaped his priorities. According to his identity. As God's son. And this is God's promise to us. To continue shaping our priorities. In accordance with our identity. As God's children. And how will this look? How can we engage in this? How can we participate in it? well, I think we can learn something from Mary in verse 51. It says, Mary, she didn't understand all this, but she treasured it up in her heart. She pondered them. You know, a few days ago, I was watching a, a movie. It was one of the Avengers movies. I don't know how many of y'all are into that, uh, but it's, it's these stories of these, of these heroes, and they're saving the world. And I watched the very last one, Infinity War, and I won't tell you what happened because uh, the, the statute of limitations for spoil alerts is not filled for this movie. But, um, You know, right now we're waiting for the next movie to come out. I saw the movie and I'm waiting for it to come out in 2019. Waiting to hear what what's gonna happen with these heroes when they return to set things right. What will they do? And probably some of us, you know, we're 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 in the same way. You're going back through, you're reading the old comic strips, or you're reading the books about these heroes, or maybe it's not maybe it's not a movie, maybe it's sports. You're hoping for a better season for your sports team, and you're going back through and reading the history of the great coaches and of the great players, and of the great victories in the past, and you're hoping that this will happen again this year. And I wonder, what does it look like for us as Christians to engage in the story of the ultimate hero, of our ultimate Savior, who has brought us onto the ultimate team and to the ultimate story of God and what he's doing? To be shaped by his word as it it reminds us of his deep love for us, of how he cares for us and numbers our tears, how he lived obediently for us, And now how he's brought us into his family to become more and more like God. What does it look like for us to be those kinds of people who are continually shaped by the scriptures as we ponder these things in our hearts to have a deeper understanding of our Savior so that when we do question and when we do suffer, we can suffer and question with hope because Jesus was worth waiting for and because he's given us great reason to celebrate. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have not left us alone. We thank you that you care deeply for us. We thank you that you came and you lived a human life. You experienced life in every way that we do, except without sin. Jesus, thank you that you're a Savior who's near to us, that you understand what we go through. And that because you care so deeply about it, you lay down your life out of love for us. So that our sins could be forgiven. And so that we can be brought into your family. So that when we do suffer, we can suffer with hope, knowing that our Father sees it and he cares about it. And one day he's going to wipe all of the tears from our eyes. Thank you, Lord, that that's the kind of Savior we've waited for in you. That you give us reason to celebrate. And so we pray now that you would equip us, Lord, to continue waiting faithfully for your ultimate arrival when you make all things new. May that be true this year and every year hereafter.